Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. The Onyx Hunt app is your premier GPS hunting app that turns your mobile phone into a working GPS. And so right now with the Onyx Hunt app, I'm using that for hunting mountain bucks here during the pre-rut rut phase in Pennsylvania. And really trying to focus on those different terrain and vegetation funnels as we're gearing up for all day sits trying to catch some cruising bucks. So by using the the hybrid layer, you can see the aerial view as well as the topography overlay to be able to try to find the transitions between those two different areas. If you head to over onxmaps.com and use the coupon code EMW, you'll save yourself 20% off of the hunt app. The University of Elk Hunting, Corey Jacobson and Elk 101 have put together the most fully comprehensive elk hunting learning course available. There's a ton of different modules going through everything from the beginning of planning the hunt all the way through, you know, anything from elk hunting knowledge to gear, training to packing the animal out at the end. Everything is there, a ton of information all in one place. And in addition, you get some discounts from some partners, including the Elk 101 store, where you can get all your elk hunting gear at a discounted price. So if you head over to elk101.com and use the coupon code East Meets West, you'll save yourself 20% off of a one-year membership for the online course. So Tethered Tethered has developed the some of the lightest weight mobile hunting gear and is continuing to do so. And specifically in the saddle hunting community, I started saddle hunting last year and this year I've exclusively done it. I have not hung out, hunted out of a hang on stand or a climber or anything at all this year. And so tethered has a ton of different options on their website, but what's even better about it is they don't just sell you products. They give you the information to learn about it, to see if it's right for you. So if you head over to tetherednation.com, you can find all that information and go from there. All right, so on today's episode, I'm going to talk to a friend of mine, Jason Red, who's also the owner of Timber Ninja Outdoors. I had him on the podcast, I don't know, a few, probably about four months ago now, to talk about mobile hunting gear and go through all that. Well, this time we're talking about how to hunt a new area for mountain bucks. And, you know, going into an area blind, say you're on your rut, your rutcation, you're going to a new state, maybe just a new area in the state what to do and how to make the most out of that that time frame and what to you know how do you get through that and and you know talking about all day rut sits everything that kind of deals with this time of year so excited for you get to listen to it but before then i want to talk to you about a few things that's been going on so i've been i hunted last week i was off wednesday and friday and well, I will be off on Monday, which is yesterday from the time that this has uh, been recorded, but I'm recording this on Sunday to try to get it out of the way so I can hunt tomorrow. And so Jared from Tether, Jared Schaefer was supposed to be here with me filming and a last minute thing came up where he had to cancel and something happened at his house. And, and uh, so that was unfortunate, but nonetheless, I got out and, and got to, got to do some hunting and it was real slow on Wednesday. I didn't even see a deer the whole day. Saw a flock of turkeys. I was hunting some scrapes in a you know steep hemlock side hill, 
and just seemed like they just weren't, you know, scrapes this time of year uh, are usually what I'm focusing on, and it just seemed weird. And I kept hearing reports of people, bucks chasing does. I was driving in the one morning, and there was a big 10-point lockdown with a doe and a clear cut, and there was just a lot of different stuff going on that made me think that I needed to change it up a little bit. So Friday, I sat till, I don't know, noon, I think. And or maybe even one o'clock, and I, I got out and checked some cameras I had there, and I I've been hunting. I haven't talked about this, but I've been hunting a specific buck, and usually the reason why I don't talk about this because I don't want people knowing what uh, what I'm hunting and and everything else. Because with other people able to hunt the areas, you know, it's my truck's really identifiable. But anyways, I think by now anybody knows my truck's there. I'm trying to hunt. Uh, you know, significantly large deer. There's good deer in the area, so that's kind of, you know, what it is at this point. But I've been hunting this one deer that's one of the biggest deer that I've ever hunted before in Pennsylvania. And I was getting them on my cameras, but two hours before light, two hours after dark, and I was sitting there thinking. I'm on the ground. I'm like, do I? I think he's you know bedding further out than I thought. Um, you know, on this next ridge over and I knew there was a point with some blowdowns, some thick hemlocks and I was about to head over that way, try to set up closer on like a scrape and that I could find. And I was like, you know what? No, I got to go. I said, I think I'm overthinking this right now. Things can transition at any moment to trying to find the does. And I've been hearing so many reports of chasing and stuff going on. I'm going to try to go find some does. So I headed up to the top where there's some smoke trees and just a small patch of oaks and then a clear cut and just as I get to the top of the hill I'm only 80 yards above my last camera where I had it on a big signpost rub and I had him on there on there and I'm on the ground just still hunting with the wind in my face and I did a grunting bleat sequence to mimic chasing and all of a sudden come blowing out of this clear cut is this doe running right at me I see a little four point behind her sprinting. So I immediately, I'm like, who knows what could be with them. So I went right to full draw and out comes running full sprint is that, that my number one deer, the biggest deer that I've been hunting and my jaw just about dropped. So he comes out and I stop him with a mouth grunt at 15 yards broadside, but he's in some brush. So I get down on one knee on full draw and the way I'm making this sound like it's you know, like I was slowly taking my time. I mean, this all happened in a matter of like three seconds, but I got down and so I'm running that Garmin zero bow site. And so I tried, this is totally my fault. So let me just say this right now. This is totally my fault that what I should have did was just double tapped it from the beginning. When I saw them coming in to pull up fixed pins, they were so close that I didn't need to range it. But you know how your mind gets when uh, a big buck's in front of you. Mine just went completely to mush. And and I'm like trying to range him while he's standing there. And a the brush was was screwing it up. And I'm, you know, shaking a little bit. And and I couldn't get my dot to come up. And then uh, he just takes off back after the doe. And runs back into the, the thicket. And I was just like, I just wanted to throw up immediately because it's not very often that that I hunt one specific deer and have an opportunity at them like that. It just, everything worked out perfectly and I just screwed it up. I mean, that's all there is to it. 
it's not, it's definitely not the bow sites fault. It's not anything but mine. Like there's things I could have did and I didn't do. Um, but it's, I don't know. It's, it's a very tough, uh, pill to swallow. And I wanted just to kind of walk out of the woods. That was like at two o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, no. So I said, well, they, they went back in this cut and there's like a thin strip of really thick stuff. And I'm just going to go to the edge of it. And I went out and there's like an old ATV trail or something that ran through it. And I caught a glimpse of deer and then I saw them running again. And I couldn't see the buck, but I just saw the doe and one of the small bucks sprinting around in this, this cut and running right back out to me. And I'm getting ready, waiting. And then the doe spotted me and spun him back around and went the opposite direction. So I almost had a second chance, and I but I didn't. So... Immediately, I went in there and went right into the cut. I actually have a camera that was right there, and I got a photo of the small buck, one of the small bucks, and the doe running past the camera, but didn't get him because just because he was a little bit behind the the rest of them, which was kind of weird. But um, it picked them up on the three shot burst and and missed him coming through i wish i would have had that camera on video mode but it was my uh exodus render so it was the video one i didn't want you know take up all that bandwidth sending videos to my phone but anyways so i just went in there and i was like well now's a pretty good time to well i was just gonna set up right there and i was like i'm gonna go out a little bit further spot that because this is a brand new area this year i found this buck shed in the spring and that's what made me start hunting it. So I went back out a little bit and I ended up finding one of his beds. I'm pretty sure it's one of his beds. And the reason why I think it is, is because there was two rubs leading out of this bed that looked just like the other ones that I'm getting him on camera His what I consider his rub line where there's a signpost rub. They're real high up on the tree. He likes rubbing hemlocks and so, and I was about 250 yards behind from where I was, had my camera and set up and everything. So I went back to where my camera was, you know, kind of where I saw them running through and set up right there for the, the rest of the night and didn't see, I don't think I saw another deer, but, um, so then I went back in there in the morning, Saturday and sat all day, dark to dark. I saw all the other bucks that were with him. There was two spikes in a four point, um, or not, excuse me, a spike in a four point. And there was another spike that I didn't see. And then, and then I saw, um, two does come up and I mean, all of them were right there basically in shooting range. Um, and then right exactly at noon, I had, uh, I had a nice two-year-old eight point. I mean, when I first saw him, I thought I was going to shoot him until I got a better look at him, but he came in, hit my scrape and then walked over and I had a decoy out Montana two-dimensional decoy that I named. I, if, if you follow me on Instagram, you've seen, I named her Janelle and uh, Janelle brought in this buck. I mean, literally he came sprinting in and Went right up behind her like you should. Offered me a broadside shot at like 12 yards. And then he got behind her and couldn't see her because she's two-dimensional. So he like loops around me again. And he comes on the other side of my tree and is looking at it. And I got cool video of him and stuff. And then he just kind of wandered off and kept going. But 
and then I didn't see another deer the rest of the night, but that's, that's kind of what was going on, but there's obviously a hot doe in there and bucks are, bucks are cruising. So besides him, I only saw young bucks, but I'm going to go back in there tomorrow morning. So by the time this podcast releases, I'd already been in there, but I'm going to go back in. I, I got to go in today, which is Sunday, which I didn't want to do, but I don't have a, tr- there's not a tree in the spot I'm there that's good for a Northwest wind. And this is kind of on the top. So you can kind of get a consistent wind and it's just where all those deer were traveling a Northwest wind would screw me. So I need to find a different tree and there, there's not one right where I was at. So I'm gonna have to relocate about a hundred yards probably and get in a tree, try to get in that thick stuff. Cause that's where they seem like, like traveling through that thick stuff on the edge and um see what see what happens i guess so i'm gonna go in see if i can find some spot where it pinches them down a little bit and go set up today maybe throw my saddle up in the tree get out of there and uh, we're supposed to get some snow and everything i mean i think tomorrow's gonna be a banner day hopefully by the time this comes out on tuesday i have a buck down um who knows but that's that's what i'm going for and then um on Friday, Justin Mueller filmed my caribou and elk hunt. He's coming in to film me for like nine days of hunting or eight days of hunting, whatever it is. And if I get one here, we'll go to either New York or Ohio. But as of right now, um, we're planning on uh, hunting in Pennsylvania so to make a, a mountain buck film. So that's what's been going on. A lot of stuff there, um, but... Um, it's been pretty, pretty crazy, you know, beginning here, I I guess to look at the positives, although I was sick to my stomach about messing that opportunity, I don't think I spooked him and I got on him and that's, you know, I, I know where he's living or at least living part of the time. So that's, that's really, you know, a positive thing to pull out of this and see what, what happens going forward here. So I'm going to stay in that area and you know focus my efforts there and see what kind of what happens and then we'll I guess we'll just we'll see and I think the second week in November is going to be get some of the other you know mature bucks up on their feet a little bit more cruising I I seem to like that week a little bit better than the first week but that's just me um so that's uh that's the plan going forward to uh also just another news I did release well i I talked about it last week but i released a video my gear list it's up on uh youtube channel and a blog post that goes along with that on my website so you can check that out and i also put up a couple new hats on the website so if you've been waiting for the legacy style hats so like the lower profile mesh super comfortable hats i got two new colors um in stock up on the website go check that out really appreciate all the support there and I hope that you enjoy this podcast here with a buddy of mine, Jason Red. All right, we're live. Jason Red, welcome back to the podcast, man. What's up, dude? Uh, thanks for having us on, man. It's always a pleasure to be on chatting with you. Yeah, yeah, I'm pumped. Uh, you and I had probably about, well, almost an hour and 30 minute conversation before we even <laughs> started rolling here. It's, it's, uh, it's good, always good, to, good to catch up with you. You know, ever since you and I met, I guess, via the, the internet world, um, I don't know if it was earlier this year, last year, I can't even remember at this point, but, uh, we've, we've come to talk quite a bit. 
Yeah, I'm. I feel like I'm really good at sliding into people's DMs. So um, I'm glad we that worked out. And we became buddies, man. It's it's been a really fun relationship. I need to look back so we maybe we can have an anniversary. Yeah, we gotta we gotta make sure. Maybe we'll even have like a candlelit dinner or something. Candlelit you know? bush bush latte anniversary. <laughs> that'd be that'd be really nice because you're you and Catman and Adrian like talk me in to start drinking bush light for like my camp beers. So <laughs> I remember when you texted me, you're like, so do you like, do you really like bush light or what? I need a good camp beer. I'm like, yeah, I've been drinking it since I'm 15. <laughs> I know. I drink, I drink Miller highlights, which I still do um, for my camp beer, but it has opened my eyes up. So I appreciate that. So you're, you're big in my heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well. Hopefully, we get to share a camp sometime and have some some of those camp beers. That'd be a that'd be a good time. Oh, I think so. It'd be awesome, man. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, before we get started here, Jason, do you uh, want to give a brief background on yourself? What just for everyone's knowledge, Jason was on the podcast. I guess it was only about four months ago now, um, and uh, so you can listen to that one as well. But I want to give a, get a little background on you and kind of who you are, why you're here type of deal. Well, um, I, my name is Jason Red. I grew up in Arkansas and moved to the mountains of North Carolina in 2009. I am uh, the owner and founder of Timber Ninja Outdoors, which is a mobile hunting products company. And uh, a lot of the reason why I developed these products um, was because I was became a mountain mobile hunter on public land. And uh, I was always a public land hunter, but just, you know, lived in the Mississippi Delta and then moved to the mountains. So uh, that's the main gist of why we created the products that we have now. And, and tonight we're on here talking mountain buck hunting on public land, which is what I really love to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty pumped uh, to get to talk to you about that. So you had reached out to me, um, it's only about a week ago, I guess. And, and you're like, Hey, we need to talk about going into essentially brand new areas, say out of state or could even be within state, but you know, for hunting the mountains, like, what do you do if you've never been there before and you're just going in and starting a hunt? And, you know, I think that's a great topic and it was really relevant because I had just done a, a backcountry hunters and anglers, um, filson skills night that they had and i was doing it on pennsylvania big woods hunting and that was one of the questions i got like what do you do and then i got some emails from guys even after you and i talked same thing after that thing like where do i start like what do i do is it too late to hunt this year you know those type of things and and no it's not <laughs> you know it, it's definitely not and i think that's just a it's a really good kind of topic to dive into yeah no i and i brought that up because you know, there's so much awesome information out there. Like you've had guys on like Nathan Killen, who I think is in, in my frame of mind as a mountain hunter is like the goat of Eastern big woods, mountainous terrain hunting. And a lot of these guys, they have tons of knowledge about where they hunt and that stuff has helped me a lot, but they have limited time. You know, he, Nathan talks about it. Like he has so much time that he can hunt. So he has to capitalize on, you know, where his, um, where he can be his most successful and that's going to be at home, which he is in a great area. He kills great bucks, but I get a lot of questions and what allures me is the adventure of hunting our Eastern mountains because people don't understand 
there's a lot of guys, let me back up. There's a lot of guys that want to go on Western hunts, but maybe can't afford it and don't have the time. But there's a, a lot of amazing adventures to be capitalized on, on the East coast in our mountains, in our mountains. I've had people out here from the West and everywhere and they take our mountains for granted. And you can have an amazing backcountry experience hunting whitetail deer, you know, Indiana East in big, in big mountains. And you can have a, you can go as deep as you want in some places. I mean, out of some people's comfort zones, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree anymore. I mean, that, that's one of the things that I want my, one of my personal goals is to experience more of the Appalachian range and hunt all the States that have it and see what, cause I feel like they're, they're also similar, but also different at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. We were just talking about that and that's, what's really, um, intrigued me over the last, you know, I would say five plus years is hitting a new state every year and experiencing that Appalachian range. And what I love so much about it, and I know there's a lot of people's strategies are based on scouting and pinpointing and fine tuning their area. But what really gets me going, like I do that at my home range, like, but I get really stoked about picking an area out in a new uh, state in the mountains and doing just e-scouting and going in there and hunting it by myself, you know, for a week, I usually try to, you know, in these types of hunts, I'll, I go for the high success rate. So I try to go during the rut and going in and finding sign and getting on something. And even if I don't kill something, if I get on a good buck in a week in an area I haven't been, I feel like that's like the, a, a huge accomplishment to me. Like, you know, in, in my own ego, like, I'm like, Oh, I'm stoked. You know, like I yeah. found a, I found a mature buck in an area I've never been to in a week. Like that's, that's, that's awesome to me. And, and I have a lot of people message me and ask about that. Cause they know I do hunt that way a lot because they're curious. And now there's more people cause we are backing up talk. There's more people talking about mountain buck hunting, like Nathan Killen, you know, yourself and, and other people that I think is getting people intrigued. And I think it's like a building like little niche of hunting experiences that people can't have. Yeah. It, it's always blown my mind that, there was never, you know, much media coverage or you don't see that stuff in magazines. You don't see any of that that talked about hunting these type of the mountains. There's so many people that do and have always done that. And I'm glad that there's more people talking about it. I mean, I'm learning so much from meeting people like yourself and Nathan and, and all the others that I've met throughout the East Coast that are just hunting this way and just killing it. And it's there's stuff to be learned from everybody. And I think that's, that's a really cool, we're in a cool era, I guess, as far as that goes. And what I've learned, like through my podcast and everything, people that are reaching out, asking these questions, say like a lot of my listenership comes from areas like Pittsburgh and some of the, the cities, you know, in the East coast. And they're like, I, I'm sick of hunting these small plots around, you know, in the suburbs or, you know, some of the public lands that are closer to the city. I want, I want to get away. I want to go out and have like a true, you know, backcountry experience or just, you know, just getting away from people. I, I, I think you're kind of similar to me, Jason, in the fact that I don't like hunting around people. I don't like being around people a whole lot, to be honest. And it's just like when I'm in the woods, I want to, I want to be away. Yeah. Well, I was born, um, an only child. So I think that has something to do with me wanting to be by myself a lot, but I'm starting to appreciate 
hunting with like one other person on the same wavelength and even like opening myself up to going to hunting camps just to have fun. Like, you know, I got started going to hunting camps as a kid and that, that's what brought me to it. But my own personal selfishness, I guess, and goals makes me want to be a solo hunter, but man, like it's so fun to go do these adventures sometimes by yourself or even with one person. And we have so many areas to do it, but it is, I know when I started, I was just like, I'm going to do it. I don't, I don't care. Like, that's what I want to do, but it is overwhelming to people if they've never really went out and traveled and, and did these things. And it's like, where do you get started? You know? And, uh, but man, like it's so fun because you can go into some remote places and be out there and not have anybody camp next to you. And, I would take less deer, um, but a more solo serene experience over a higher population any day. And, in you know, like I said, most places I get on, like I'm able to find a good buck in there. It just takes a little boot leather. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things Like if you want to hunt these areas and your idea is hunting the biggest rack buck you've ever seen, it probably isn't for you. You know, I'm not saying that they're not there. I'm not saying that at all, but your your odds are a lot higher in other places. You know, this is if you want this experience like we're talking about. You wanna you wanna hunt deer being deer, or as you say, North Carolina deer aren't really deer. But uh <laughs> yeah. um but yeah. just like hunting, you know, the I don't know. I there's just like an allure to me that's it's almost, you know, as a writer and everything else, I still find myself difficult to explain why i do it you know like in, yeah. in a good way yeah i think people have to break it down and understand the micro climate of the areas that some people hunt in and realize what type of accomplishment it is like i was telling you earlier where i live in the national forest there's 0.4 bucks killed per square mile and that's not a lot no <laughs> and but man when you do accomplish that it is a pretty awesome experience you know and there's so many other areas like that that have better deer i mean virginia ohio pennsylvania you know new york even vermont and i still hear from some old school guys that have been all over the country hunting whitetails that the biggest bucks they've ever seen in their career of 40 years of hunting have been in the main big woods like in that place doesn't get talked about, but man, you've got a whole world of wilderness under your fingertips. That is, you know, not very far from where you live. Technically. I got, I got an episode coming out with Hal blood. I just recorded up in Maine. Uh, I've so, heard his name. Yeah. yeah. He's a big tracking guy. And, um, but yeah, that's, and I got one coming out from, uh, from, uh, New Hampshire too. So I'm trying to cover some more of those areas. There's some freaking giants. Oh, dude, in that place, I've been rock climbing and trail running up through New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine, and the big woods up there, it's just, it's almost mind-boggling, you know, and I feel like I live in, you know, Chisca National Forest, I think we have, um, what is it, you know, like 750,000 acres, something like that, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's a big tract, you know, and that's a lot of country for one you know for a one hunter you you can't cover that in a lifetime but you think about some of these other areas it's even vaster than that it's just amazing yeah that's but it's like to our conversation it's like how do you get started you know trying to figure some of these places out like where do you go yeah so uh, let's let's give it a start here jason so um 
I'm trying to figure out how to transition this, but if you were going to go to a new state, say you're going to Virginia or you're going to Ohio or something, what what are those things that you're thinking of as you're heading into a new area or even say North Carolina? What, what does that start for somebody that is wanting to get into this? Well, you know, if you're hunting public land, which I think most of us are looking at for doing a one season trip, what I start to look at is the first thing I start identifying in a state is okay what region of that state if i'm looking at mountains which i normally do in the mountainous region what what part of that state has the best deer you know buck potential like mature buck density you know you you can find that information out a lot of times by googling their state buck records you can find out counties and things like that Uh, i also look at states and be like in wmas and we'll see okay, is there any bow only areas? Because mainly I'm hunting with a bow and I feel like your your chances are better if you're, you know, strictly an archery hunter for going in and getting into some places that you couldn't get in. Some of these bow only spots, you only they're only rifle for draw, for instance. So your chances of finding mature deer in those areas are going to be higher if it's archery only or, you know, if it does allow um, modern gun, it's on a draw. So those are pretty good WMAs to start looking at. Uh, the next thing I always look at is access. Okay. So how far is it away from a major metropolitan? So that, that will show you, uh, essentially how much pressure you're potentially going to get in that area. Uh, and then two, I look at terrain. So if it's, you know, more mountainous and hilly, you're gonna have less people wanting to go in there. You know, your average weekend warriors that, you know, aren't hardcore they're not going to go to those areas so you're going to have less pressure uh and then i also start looking at access if i can find places that have lakes or rivers that could access into deeper portions i'll utilize a boat canoe or kayak you know um because that's going to cut out some people not everybody has a boat or water access so i start looking at those things first in an out of state and then being a cheap guy that likes to hunt multiple states i'll start looking at the you know, license costs for each state. I mean, that varies drastically state to state. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's so true too. And where, if you were to say like a good, the places that you hunted somewhere, that's pretty good bang for your buck type of deal. As far as out of state license costs, do you have any that you would recommend looking at? I mean, I think um, if we're looking at the East coast and what I've hunted, you know, even though Ohio took a little bit of a, a jump the last was it last year they took the bigger jump yeah we're still what under 250 bucks so i mean for state of ohio in an area that produces you know tons of boone and crockett animals and what we were talking about earlier in my opinion deer that act like deer that's a a great state like that deer act like deer in that state there's a lot of them that the populations i feel a little more balanced in some areas so they actually act in the way you hear about people talking about them on some hunting shows, you know? Um, so Ohio's pretty economical still. Um, West Virginia is very rugged and there's bow only counties in the area that have been bow only for, I don't know, 25, 30 years that offer these potential, the potential for older age class animals um in that state i think uh i think it's 175 bucks 
And I believe Virginia, my tag this year, and that includes the sportsmen for turkey, rifle, whitetail, everything. I think I still am under 200 bucks. So that's not bad. North Carolina is not the cheapest. South Carolina is pretty expensive. And Tennessee and Kentucky are getting pretty outrageous. I mean, you're looking at 300 to 375 in those states right now. Really? Yeah. I believe if you, if you go full, you know, all on, I mean, you can cut it down and do like a, let's say a five to 10 day uh, temporary tag um, in some of those states that can be a little bit cheaper. But if you're going all in, you know, it's, it's pretty expensive in some of those states. But what I always like to look at is some of those areas I will buy a turkey tag in and go turkey hunt them. That way I can do some intel for deer season sometimes. I mean, I don't get to do that all the time, but I have used that to my advantage and I buy an annual tag, especially if they go date to date. Yeah. That that's a good advantage for, for guys. Yeah, that, that, that would be, that would be really good. And, and what's funny, um, Ohio that you mentioned their license costs. I remember when it was only a few years ago, what it was 125 bucks or 150 maybe to yeah, 48 or something yeah, yeah it was so i i remember it because i remember it was like 25 dollars for the deer tag or something and 125 for the license or something along those lines and yeah i knew it made a little jump but it's still worth it <laughs> yeah i mean and to have a chance of great deer i mean there's a lot of, of great areas and especially those areas like ohio and west virginia virginia you can get into the mountain buck type terrain that you know i think we're we're kind of focused on talking about yeah and give you that backcountry experience i mean the one of the places i hunt in um ohio is seventy five thousand acres so that's a that's a big big chunk of ground to be able to get away from people yeah and uh, like even places you know you got pennsylvania you got new york um i can't even think i'm trying to think what the cost is in pennsylvania i'm kind of embarrassed that i don't don't know what that uh what that cost is off the top of my head but then you know yeah new york as you're going up those places i know they're pretty reasonable as far as that goes and you can get that experience in any of those places essentially yeah yeah i mean there's so much good terrain that goes all the way up the east coast that you know every year like pennsylvania you guys are i see bigger deer getting pumped out of that state year after year because of some of the management practices y'all put in statewide, you know, $101 and 90 cents for a non-resident adult hunting license in Pennsylvania. And I think there's an archery permit that you got to get with that. Yeah. For, for non-resident archery, it is $26 and 90 cents. So $128 essentially. And that also gets you a Turkey tag, um, as well. So that's, not a really bad actually no i don't want people coming here let's talk about some other states <laughs> yeah in, in the other state i mean you still think about that if you're two dudes that are coming from alabama gas and you know if you're sleeping backcountry style and you know doing your own food and stuff i mean you can have a pretty awesome experience for under a thousand dollars oh yeah easily yeah yeah easily yeah so i mean and I think you can get some of the same. You may not have bugle and elk, but you can have a really fun experience in the mountains if you've never done that. And I think it's a good precursor to experience some of this before you go. I mean, you have the experience of going out west, and I do, 
like I think it's a good precursor for guys that have never been out west to like go and try the East Coast mountains before they go on a Western hunt. I've said that so many times as far as people that are preparing, if you can go on summer camping trips or doing anything and the same thing with say, uh, a, you know, Eastern whitetail hunting trip in November in the Appalachian mountains, see what it's like to see how your body and your mind holds up for camping for seven days when it gets cold and you're tired and you're hiking all over and stuff that gives you a kind of a good perspective of you know, what you're going to deal with out there. Cause I can promise you that there's some, there's definitely differences, but I'm not going to say it's any, any tougher out there than it is here. It's just different. Yeah. It's just different. And the only thing that we have that's a major factor is, um, they have altitude. Uh, I, I've been all over the mountains out West, uh, doing other activities. And I wouldn't say you know, besides the altitude, like the severity of the grade and stuff is, is really no different. And you can get as remote as you want to on the East coast. If you want to do a pure backcountry experience and not see anybody, you know, I was just in Virginia for four days and we saw one truck back there for four days, you know? So yeah, you can, you can, you can pick your own adventures pretty close to home and it was four hours from my house you know so so talk about that a little bit that hunt kind of how you went into planning that as far as how did you you know obviously not giving details but how you picked an area um you know you you're welcome to send me onyx waypoints so i have a good visual but yeah. um uh <laughs> like how how did you all right you say you picked a state like virginia all right now how are you going in and figuring out an area that you want to hunt within that spot well, in that area, um, I'll have to say, like, I leaned a little bit. I went with a buddy of mine, Heath Jolly, who's done some scouting in that area previously, and we were hunting together more this year and hunting Virginia together. But his method is the same as what I would um, approach. He, he looks at areas based on the demographic and, like, you know, how far away is some of this national forest land from like a city center. So that way you can cut out your weekend warriors from taking a trip. You know, if it's an hour and a half, two hours away from a big city center, you're not going to see as many people going to these areas. So we, we identify areas um, in that manner because, you know, at the end of the day, you're trying to find less pressure. Um, and, you know, you have to look at, you know, deer density. If you want to have, a lot of deer sightings. That's one thing, but also doing some research to find out like what type of quality bucks have been killed in that area. And that's easy to find. Like there's so many groups these days that focus on a state, like the state of Virginia has uh, a good Facebook group called star city whitetails. So you can see, you know, if you subscribe or follow those groups, you can see what type of bucks are being produced and you can look at most of these places, put what counties are killed out of. So you start seeing a big number of deer coming from one county, you focus on that and like, okay, where's the public land and you know, what we got going on there. And what we looked at this year, early season in some of these areas is we try to look at private land. It may butt up to, uh, I mean, public land, it may butt up to private because, you know, before the mass comes on, you know, where these deer eating and if there's private land close by that has ag, they're going to be hanging close there. So early season, it's a good tactic to look at these types of places. Um, so that's, that's one of the strategies we, we, we put in place for going to going to these areas. Just, you know, it, it varies time of the year you go in there. 
So that it's kind of tough to be exact, you know, as a broad spectrum, but early season, you want to be lower and looking for where the food is, but, you know, also in an area like we were in this year with a good mass crop, if you have good hardwoods button up to that, the deer is still going to be holding there, you know? Yeah. So, so what would you do if that was say going into the pre-rut rut type phase? So you're going on your rut vacation, say your guy's got a week off of work and you're heading into that area. Would you do that still the same or would you kind of go back in the mountains a little bit more? How would that look like? Yeah. Cause I mean, in my experience in the mountains, um, and I, I apply, imply this, with elk or anything like I think more of your mature animals in the mountains are going to be higher up the mountain most of the time. Uh, because, you know, if you have a big buck in a mountainous whitetail, you know, region, they may run down to those fields at night, but most of the time they're coming back up the mountain to bed. That's where they really live. So essentially, you know, I would imply that same method to know that, if you're around that type of food source in some of these areas that may or may not get logged that don't have good food sources, they're going to hold a higher density of deer for that region. So then you just got to find your funnels that feed in there that the bucks are going to utilize to move from doe area to doe area. Okay. So you, I, I have a couple questions generated from those, uh, those responses there. So the first thing is you were saying about the, the bucks coming down to feed. Is that something you typically see as far as them dropping elevation to feed? Or is that more or less when they have say like private lands around where they're coming down to food sources? What, what does that kind of look like? Well, yeah, that varies. So in areas that you have that food source available, it's going to be pretty key because they definitely want to take shelter in my opinion, higher but have that food source down lower, <clears throat> but they can sustain themselves off browse up, up higher. You know what I mean? So if that's not there, they still can sustain themselves, but they're going to use those same travel patterns to get themselves back and forth. Not to say that they all, every older buck has to bed up, but what I've noticed, the older age class is always higher up the mountain than it is lower unless they get down their trap with a doe. So if you're in an area with ag down there, you just, you know, I look at those finger ridges going down or, you know, any finger ridges, in my opinion, are the most important because that's really their travel patterns. And, and if you can find areas that say it's a rut, you, you're looking for rut funnels because they're going to be cruising and cutting that, that area in half as much as they can to cross the doe paths, you know, and that's the easiest path for them to find a hot doe is to start crossing paths. So if I'm hunting an area like that and I look on a topo, I'm going to look for a <clears throat> finger ridge or what I really like to find is like what they call a, a spider ridge or a spoke ridge, you know, like where a finger ridge comes down, there's other ridges that join it and it's like spokes out. Yep. That's like, that's a great connector for you to post up for a rut funnel uh, during that, you know, time when they're moving around looking for ladies. So what you're saying is essentially if you have um, where you're talking about these like spoke type areas where you got ridges that go out in a bunch of different directions and maybe some finger ridges coming off of those and where those all meet and those all connect. That's the type area you're discussing. Yeah. That's, I think if you look at a big map and you're trying to pinpoint in 
you know, let's say 17 miles of ridgeline of national forest, you have to look at the area that's going to be the, the most easily for a buck to travel, you know, if he's up there and that's going to give him the most access and the potential for him to cross you is going to be in one of those spokes because he has all these ridges come together and he can cut all these trails in one little pass and find a hot doe. And, uh, all right. So with, with that being said, when you find one of those spots, I mean, are you typically relying on once you go in their boots on the ground to figure out where you're going to set up in it? Or do you have like a general, like, okay, uh, you know, over the side of the hill or on the top or what, or, or is that more or less once you get boots on the ground, figuring that out? Well, um, if I, when I'm e-scouting a place like that, I'm going to identify those areas as my, if I'm going in blind, have no scouting experience, go into a state for the first time, I'm going to look at the topo, you know, on Onyx, and I'm going to start flagging. And that's the first areas I'm going to look at. That's what I want to look at first. And, you know, we were talking about this earlier, like I will push until I find good, good sign. And you're usually able to find some type of sign in an area like that. If it's getting used that time of year, there's going to be rub scrapes, something, you know, tracks, you just have to find those trails and pinpoint those areas. And I always tell people, you know, you may have the place that looks the best to you, but if you walk in there and there's no sign, I mean, unless you hunt where I hunt and there's just not a lot of sign period, it may not be any deer there. So you might as well keep pushing you know, until you find that hot sign before you start hunting, especially if you only have five days to do it, you know, you, you really need to keep focusing on finding where they're actually at. So usually in those types of areas in this, let's say the rut, you know, even like a little bit of pre-rut, you're going to find some sign like that. in one of those areas, if you, if you flag enough of them. And I think if you do enough e-scouting and flag enough places, you should have a lot of plans to back up on to find that. Yeah, yeah, I, I I totally agree with that. And do you do you typically like to stay at? A, I know you're talking about bucks liking to stay up higher. Are you typically trying to stay in a certain elevation, like towards the top of the hills? Are you, if you're not finding that, then obviously I'm sure then either you're going to a different area or you're trying to drop elevation. What does that kind of look like? Yeah, I mean, it really depends. I mean, most of the time, if I put enough time in in some of these areas. I'm going to be able to find what I'm looking for after a few, you know, it may take a day or so, but you usually if you did your homework of finding the right area that has decent deer density, mature bucks, you should be able to find it. You know, if you can get away, especially if you can get away from people, if you start going in some of these spots and you see a couple stands set up, you probably need to pull out and go to plan B, you know? Um, yeah. That's, and that, that's a good thing to keep pushing and, look for those things, look for access trails. And, and even talking about early season versus late season. Um, sometimes you go into some of these areas and you may see some old presets and stuff, but a lot of times that's just rifle hunting stands. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, they used to turn me off in the back in the day, but now I'm realizing, well, some of these stands, they only get used in rifle season. So they could be hot and unpressured early season, but you know, um, I think, you know, you just really have to be aware of what time you're in there and what you're seeing. But obviously if you go in and you start seeing a bunch of doe eyes pin the trees, 
there's probably more pressure in there than you think. So you, you, you may want to pull out. Yeah. When you and, go through in the woods, light up with your headlamp, then, uh, yeah, you, you might want to consider something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, I mean, if the deer are in there, you're going to find the sign. It's like right now with mass being down, like it is, you know, you, you go tree to tree until you find the tree they're using. And it takes a lot of time when there's a lot of trees dropping <laughs> acorns, you know? Yeah. And if, say, if you did find, um, you know, a tree that's dropping and stuff, how are you setting up in relation to that tree? Well, I mean, a lot of that depends on wind and thinking about where they're bedding and what their pattern is through there. Uh, I had a good example. Heath and I were in Virginia for four days. We covered a big chunk of uh, public land, a place we thought would be untouched which was pretty much untouched but the deer sign that he had seen there was based on turkey season and essentially was really good rut sign but it wasn't you know we just thought they'd be in their early season so we went and turned that country upside down and it just wasn't a good early season spot for bucks like it was a it was an amazing rut funnel and area but then we we after a few days in there we picked up and drove three hours to a new spot to find buck sign and we got in there and found immediate sign of deer hitting on trees we covered a bunch of country found a lot of doe trees but then we found a couple trees that had buck sign and i found one that had a rub under it first rub we found in a week which was quite the accomplishment we thought and and there was fresh buck droppings for multiple days under the same tree and i was like oh he's he, he may be the only deer using this tree but he's using that tree and so i this little particular place was a swamp with a mountain is building out of the mountain. And I say swamp is a Creek bottom that turned into marsh. It wasn't like a true swamp, but run into private with ag. So those deer were going between the two and we found a buck bed up on the ridge behind us, which happened to be right below where I found this rub. So, you know, I set up on that for, you know, the right wind hunted it two days and, the buck came in, but he came in 15 minutes before daylight, you know? So, but that was, you know, six days of, or four days, sorry, of hunting without seeing anything really until, you know, that one opportunity presents itself. But it was mainly because we just kept pushing until we found the good sign. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And sometimes it takes that. So what's, what's, what I'm pulling out of this and some of my own experiences, like, you know, say you went into these spots that you'd found and look good online and you're like, all right, and you go on, you might not be seeing the sign you want and you just set up right then. You might waste a few days. I'd rather waste a few days walking around and trying to find it than setting up and not seeing anything. Cause you're not really wasting it when you're scouting. I, yeah. And that's taken me, uh, that's really started to click with me in the last, I would say two years. Cause you know, you think about it, you have five days and if you're walking around, you're like, I got to find a place to set up today, tonight. You yeah. Know? But, and I've done that so many times and just thinking it looks good to me, but there wasn't sign. You're just, you're just throwing a dart and hoping. But what I found is the more I keep pushing and not worry about that and not starting to hunt until I find what's appropriate to hunt. And when I started doing that, my success rate of seeing animals, not always capitalizing, but actually seeing the animals has went up substantially. Yeah. And it, it's a risk, you know, I mean, it's a risk on time and, and, and even the more you keep pushing, 
you, you may push too deep sometimes, which, Hey, you know, you can bump animals and, and it's not, a, it's not really a bad thing to bump a buck the first time. Cause more likely if you bump him, he won the, the chess match that time and he feels like he won. So there's a good opportunity. He comes back. So, I mean, at least you found him. Yeah, that's, I, I totally, you're going to mess up more times than you're going to do things right. But every time you learn from that, and I think that's the biggest lesson in that. And anybody that's either coming into the mountains for the first time or hunting a new area for the first time, you're not, you're not, hopefully you figure it out right off the bat, but most of the time it's going to take you a little bit to kind of figure it out. And it's usually going to take you some screw ups before you do figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know from firsthand experience of coming from living in the river bottoms of Mississippi Delta to um, hunting the mountains, it, it takes a couple of years to start figuring out how these deer use these mountains. And what I've found over the years that I've been doing it is these deer in certain regions use the mountains differently. So your tactics that may work for you in North Carolina or Pennsylvania may not work exactly the same in West Virginia but you know you have to start somewhere and then if you keep looking and pushing you're usually you're gonna find what you're looking for it just it, it may not feel it may not seem right while you're doing it but a lot of times if you just keep going with your intellectual um intel you'll find what you're looking for yeah you just have to keep going and you just have to be willing to also fail, you know, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. And so, okay. And one of the other things you said towards the beginning is talking about, you know, finding these bucks funneling between doe bedding areas. And it's something that, you know, I catch myself talking about a lot and others is where the bucks are bedding, but do you find any sort of, um, any sort of pattern to how does are using the train to bed or what they're doing? Or is it, Kind of I mean, it really, it really depends on terrain. Uh, you know, like in my areas, we don't log. So there's not really any cutovers for a lot of your traditional doe bedding. Um, you know, like there's not a lot of thick areas. So you have to rely upon laurel thickets and things like that. So I think you have to really break it down to the area that you're hunting to identify wh- where the does are bedding. But, you know, more so they're going to be in more open areas closer to the food than the bucks tend to be, you know? I've, I've found that does bed way more randomly than bucks. Yeah. Do. I've found does bed in the weirdest freaking places that make zero sense on wind, on locate, like just sometimes it's just like, I, you know, I try to use the game of odds because I feel like if you, you look at mountain hunting and you look at every scenario and get too worked up over it, you'll never be able to come up with a plan because you're always, you know, if you're going by, well, they did it this time once here. Well, okay, let's look at the game odds, you know, that they're going to, yeah. same with like buck betting, you know, all right. You know, a lot of times they want to have the, you know, prevailing wind at their advantage and the thermal winds, but sometimes they'll bed like, I can't figure out why, but you, you, you still got to use those, you know, game of odds, I guess with it. Yeah. Well, I think does, you know, since they primarily, if you have a decent doe population, they're going to be in doe groups. So they have, they can rely on more eyes so they can be in more open areas. Whereas a buck, he's especially a mature buck. He's kind of a lone, lone guy, you know? So he's going to look at capitalizing on his situation a lot more detailed than, 
you know, a, a group of ladies that has multiple eyes. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and the women they they bed in a, in a way where if you ever find like a spot where a doe group beds, they'll all be like almost angled to each other because they're all facing different directions. They can see, so they can even bed and they could bed in a wide open top of an oak ridge if they wanted to and have everything covered. Yeah, you'll see that. Yeah, and you see that a lot, especially when they're really on acorns. They'll just do some little. They'll throw out some groups right there in those flats. <laughs> yeah. All the time. Um. But then, you know, the buck, he's, you know, especially in the mountains, he, I think he, you know, he always wants that upward advantage. He wants to look down because um, there's normally not anything coming from behind him. You got to think about where his predator is going to come from. And he traditionally is going to be up there higher in nasty s- spots that sometimes I find them. And I'm like, I don't even know how a deer would get here, you know, like, yeah. like but they're they're amazing creatures, man. They adapt to their terrain so so well. Yeah, and that's where it's so hard to like with the topic we're talking about. Give like, oh, this is what they do exactly. It's it is so different depending on terrain. Even in Pennsylvania, where I hunt, some of my spots that can be only fifteen miles apart, the terrain could be quite a bit different, and they bed differently. You know, and it's yeah. you know I have some spots I hunt that are more of like a marsh type mix of big woods, flatter type stuff, and they're you know, they're not really using much of the terrain to their advantage as they are cover and, and doing different things where, you know, in more of the mountainous stuff, they're using more of the terrain to their advantage. And it's just, right. it's, it's, it's trying to be able to identify that. And, you know, you, you learn that from scouting it as you're hunting, you know, and kind of going from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just look at the whitetail species and all the subspecies from whitetails and how they adapt to different regions all over their North America. It just varies so much. I mean, you look at like the coos deer and how they, how they handle things, you know, that's just a subspecies of the whitetail. You look at the, the bucks in Sonora and things like that. Like they, they're a crazy adaptive animal. Um, It's amazing. Like, especially like growing up in the Delta and, in the mountains, like some of the places that you can kick a buck out of will astonish you. But, you know, what I've found in the high mountains is the, they have a tendency to be a little higher as far as their home range. Um, yeah. And a lady can pull them out. Don't get me wrong, but predominantly they're going to be in a higher area. This same thing with when I hunt elk and stuff, like until they start rutting, they're usually hanging out high if they can. What, what do you, do you have, do you play anything with vegetation into your role? Like looking at, say, if you're scouting online with Onyx or whatever, and you're looking, are you looking at any sort of different vegetation? And I know like you were talking about, um, where you hunt in North Carolina and stuff, there's no logging. So you're not seeing those type of different vegetation features or are you more focusing on terrain? Well, I mean, it's nice and like where I live, if it, if it's not getting logged, the only dense vegetation you have is laurel thickets and, you know, bucks like to bed in laurel. Um, and they, even worse comes to worse, they can survive off eating that laurel. So they will do that too. So that's, that's usually a good thing. Uh, but the problem, if you look at where I live, laurels everywhere and high mountains everywhere. So you, you kind of <laughs> just have to start, throwing a coin and going in there and trying to find the sign and pushing, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I hear you. But we don't have much diversity of, since we don't really log here much, 
unless every once in a while you can find burns or even um even like a weather pattern can create cuts like ice storms or bad thunderstorms can uh create little what i call micro cuts and those are kind of hard to pick up on maps but every once in a while you can kind of see that i found a really good one a couple years ago uh, that i just started hunting that was just it was a weather cut and created a you know it's like i don't know if it's ice or what did it but you know created like acre of cutover and has a lot of you know um you know secondary um food browse for them and that's a lot of regeneration coming up yeah that regeneration that's and that's good for them in that area because that's there's not much of that yeah and that's i i know you know and i'm very lucky in a lot of the areas i hunt in pennsylvania there is so many logging cuts but i hunted an area in northern pa that didn't have any logging cuts and it was all mature timber you know, more of this, I think more related to what you're hunting, you know, with some laurel on the side hills and, and big timber and some hemlocks and stuff, but mostly big timber and laurel. And that was, that was incredibly challenging in its own to kind of figure that out and, you know, go in there and see how they're using that. And the browse wasn't as, as good as like what I was finding in some of my other areas, you know, cause there's not, you know, some of that, yeah, big, giant mature timber that's so old is shading you know some of that regen from coming up in that new browse yeah well you know the key is if you're hunting mountain public you're in a state that does cut if you can find a laurel thicket above a clear cut that's a pretty dang good place to start looking you know yeah 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 (laughs) so what happens if you're hunting the mountains you go in an area and there's no mass crop there's no acorns. Well, that's a good question. Um, and that varies. Like where I live, we don't, I have sections of um, mountain terrain that there's no ag for them to really go to. So they have to rely upon the browse. So I was having a conversation with uh, Devin Duncan today about that. And in some of these areas, if they don't have that mass, doesn't really change their pattern. So if you run trail cameras year to year, like I know you're you're pretty big on putting a camera in and letting it soak for a year without ever seeing it. So if you put it in an area like that and you see deer pattern movement, a lot of times it's not affected by food because that food really doesn't vary much. But I find in areas like where I hunt in Ohio, there's ag with the public's all big timber. If there's not a good mass year, you won't, you rarely, you won't even see a deer in there because they're all yeah. pushed into the ag that year. Um, whereas if you have a good mass year like this year, and which is one of the reasons I'm going back to Ohio this year is we have a bumper crop of mass this year. So I know the area I hunt is going to be pretty primo to go back into. Um, so you, you kind of have to look at what, what is the deer's backup plan for food? And if you're in an area like where I live in North Carolina, where there's not a lot of ag around, you know, they're going to go back to the browse. So they're going to be living off laurel. They're going to be living off. A lot of people don't understand how much a deer's diet can be dependent upon greenbrier. You yeah. know, a lot of bucks live on greenbrier. Like I know a, a guy I know in Ohio, I was talking to you about earlier, it's killed a lot of Boone and Crockett deer. 
he killed a 220 inch buck a few years ago. They cut his stomach open. It was nothing but greenbrier. So that deer, his home range was pretty much a greenbrier thicket and a cedar thicket. And, you know, he chased does or, you know, those mature bucks. I, I have a, a really good assumption that it's like an old Tom Turkey. The old educated does go to those mature bucks first and they don't really have to chase. And that, I think that's another reason why you see mature bucks getting killed in late season. Cause they're catching those, that new offspring of does coming in the heat and they, and they know that from seven years of living, you know? Yep. And, and that's, so that's a, another point where I've found in Pennsylvania from running cameras and stuff, a lot of times our season was ending, our archery season was ending around November 11th and 12th. And my cameras were telling me that you were finding those really big mature bucks cruising in that 15th, 16th type range, you know, that was a little bit later because they're going around looking for those other does where they may have, you know, already had them coming to them or, you know, something from the, at the beginning, there's been two times that I've seen from, from my patterns and experiences was towards the end of October, you can sometimes get some of those really big bucks going. And then the first week of November seems to be, you still, obviously there's exceptions, to any rule, but, um, it seemed to be more of the, you know, three-year-old, maybe four-year-old bucks running that time frame and, and younger. And then, the really old ones are moving again a little bit later. And yeah. and that's just, and believe me, I'm not at a point where I'm above shooting those three or four-year-olds. I'll shoot them every day. But yeah. um, that's just what I've kind of seen. And our season actually goes to the 20th this year, and they've kind of been um, changing it. So my vacation, hopefully I'm tagged out before then I can go to another state. But if not, is you know, my biggest vacation, November 7th through the 16th. And that's yeah. kind of, that's when I've killed my, my best box have been in that time frame. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like Ohio, for instance, if you go look at their um, records registry and you look, cause they post the antler, antler inches, the County and the date. And if you look at like the most mature deer that get killed in Ohio, there's some dates that stick out to me in Ohio, October 31st and like Thanksgiving week is like primo for big mature bucks. Um, but that doesn't take into account the hundreds of 130 to 140 class that are killed November 4th through the 12th, you know, and, and that's your, in those States, that's your two and three year old deer because you know, you can get a two-year-old deer in some of these high genetic places that are carrying 120 plus inches of antlers that most of us on a hunt are going to smash. I'm, you know, like, oh, yeah. I'm not letting him walk by if I don't live in that state. You know, if I live there and have history and experience, yeah. But 120, 130 walks by me on public in a place I've never been. He, he's he's getting shot at, you know. Well, it's it's funny you say that. I had a, I was hunting in Ohio in 2017. I just killed a buck in PA, and I drove all the way through the night and got to the spot in Ohio morning. It was daylight by the time I got there, and I hiked up to the spot I found in the spring, but it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. So I was walking around the piece. I found this this hot 
sign. It was kind of in a saddle, essentially. Um, there was a strip mine on the one side and the steep gully on the other, and I just set up right there. You, there was a big scrape on the top, and I, but I was on one side of the hill. And that first evening, this buck came in, and I shot it. And it was a 12-point. had split G2, split G3s. I mean, just incredible deer. And I think he was only a two-and-a-half-year-old. Like, yeah. like literally my buck in PA that was five years old, his body was like double the size of this, but it had the same amount of inches of antler on its head. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's a, that's a prime example of what we were talking about earlier. If you go into an area that you've not been to and it has those genetics, so you want to capitalize on the, the majority of the bucks cruising, you got to look for these spokes or these webs and these ridges because that's going to be their easiest travel point. So you're going to see a lot more animals cruising through those areas and you have those chances because the terrain plays in your, you know, the whitetail is a goat of an animal in my opinion, but there's some things they don't want to go up to go up or cross. So you, you find those pinch points and you're going to, if you sit there all day and it takes all day sits to see this stuff happen and it sucks. Like I didn't, come into my own to being able to hunt all day sits for multiple days until I was in my mid thirties. And I've been hunting since I was seven. And like, I just now I'm 40 now, you know, I just now in the last five, six years have created that type of, you know, mental balance to be able to sit there all day and wait on this type of thing to happen. Yeah. (laughs) I, I learned, I learned it a little bit earlier just from the standpoint of, I remember when I used to go and hunt my dad's stands and I use that excuse. Like when I was just getting into college, I'm like, Hey, you know, I don't have time to scout. Like, can you help me out? And he's like, yeah, I'll send you in these spots. Like, don't leave the stand early. He's like, you need to sit. And he'd even say, at least sit till one o'clock. And I'd be like, what do you mean? Like, I didn't see anything first thing in the morning. I remember texting him the one time, like, I'm getting down. It's like 10 o'clock. He's like, don't get down, stay. I'm like, I, I can't do it. I'm like, whatever. So like 1030, I'm climbing down out of my tree. I'm at the last stick and here comes a buck in. And I, I, I've had, I had this happen twice actually, which I'm embarrassed to say, but, and, and then I ended up missing the buck off the ground. I got an opportunity at him and I missed him. but, uh, it was just, I, I learned from that point and it still took me a little while before I started doing it, but Man, I I don't love sitting all day, but that's what I do when I have that when I yeah. find one of those spots. Or if you're too fidgety, you can use that to your advantage to grid hunt an area. So if you have a like say a ridge point that you've identified and you start running a sign, I always like to set up I love getting into a place in the afternoon and like say noon and start walking and find sign on a point that I'm like if it's a long ridge point, I can probably get a couple sits out of. I love to find a spot like that that has sign, and I'll start hunting it that afternoon. And I always give it an afternoon and a morning sit. And then if I hunt through the morning, I'll hunt till like eleven to twelve, and then I'll get up and push a little bit further and set up again for that next afternoon morning sit. And top, I work that ridge out as you know, as long as I'm still running a good sign and it's a good terrain feature for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's. That, that can definitely be a, I, I know a lot of people that do that actually, like they have, they'll be out all day, but they have those morning and evening spots that they want to sit. And, and, and I think that can be super successful as well. I'm just not one of those guys during the rut that goes back to my truck in the middle of the day to eat lunch or do anything there. 
Yeah, I mean, there's no reason. Um, I was just reading uh, Mike Meaton's book, One with the Wilderness, and he was talking about if you go on a um, whitetail hunt or any hunt and you're away from home, there's no reason to go back. Why not just be out there? What else are you going to do? You're going to go to your truck and get a sandwich and sit there on the tailgate? Like, take the sandwich with you. You don't have to, like, spread more scent coming back. Just keep pushing into your places. I mean, there's nothing else to do in some of these places besides hunt. So why not be out in the woods? Yeah. So here's a question for you. When you're doing these all-day sits in a spot, are you hiking in in the dark and setting up in the dark? Are you hunting your way in? Or what does that kind of look like? That was a good question. I had that. I had a guy ask me that the other day that he was going to a new spot for a rut hunt and how it was working out logistically for them was they were going to get there at night and having to start their hunt the next morning. And I feel at that point, if you've never been there, it's best to probably wait for the, get some daylight and start scouting your way, scout hunting, still hunting. I mean, I know people, you know, probably assume because I, I own a mobile hunting products company that I always hunt out of a tree stand, but honestly hunt a probably 30% of the time off the ground. I do a lot of ground hunting and you can be effective there. I mean, Indians did it. We've all done it, you know, like, yeah. And, and to this day, there's not an advantage anymore in some areas of getting high on deer because they're educated on looking up in trees. Yep. So if you find the right terrain, it's not any, if you have a good backdrop and stuff, you're just as effective on the ground. So don't, don't rule out quietly stalking in to scout slash hunt your way into a place on your first morning. But the key is before you start setting, putting that time in on the stand, you know, five to 14 hours, making sure it's the place you want to be, you know, and make everything, all your cards line up for you. Yeah. And that, that's so, and one thing you said about hunting off the ground that I think is a, a good point is, so one of the things I always struggled with is getting comfortable when you're on the ground, but you could still take your stand or your saddle or whatever and set it up at ground level, essentially. Man, I a hundred percent agree. Um, especially in the mountains, uh, sometimes it doesn't matter if you're four sticks, I mean, one stick to 10 sticks, you're, you're potentially not going to, you're always going to have a deer that could be eye level with you. Yeah. So you, you, you still have to play the cover to your advantage. So it doesn't matter if you're one stick or even like, sometimes it's hard to find in the mountains, a place to comfortably sit on the side on the ground. And I have seen with hunting with a saddle this year, you can just take your saddle and tether it to a tree at ground level and still swing around a little bit and you play the tree to your advantage and be comfortable and not slide down the hill. Yeah. 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 That's, that's so true. It's such a good point. And we were talking about again, before this, before we started recording spot, I have that's in heavy hemlock cover on a side hill. The thermals pull down just about all day and I'll set up below and I'm essentially at eye level with the deer, no matter how high I'm going. So I'm just trying to get at the right level where I got a good backdrop behind me as far as cover goes. Yeah. Well, and even in hunting, like some of these laurel thickets, you may find an area in those laurel thickets that opens up and some of the trees that grow in these laurel thickets aren't very big. So all you need is a stick or maybe two sticks to get above the laurel to be able to look down in some of these holes to get a shot. So um, I, I, I don't think people need to always think they have to be 18, 20 feet high to be successful. And 
that's the reason I only carry, you know, two or three sticks with me uh, is because most time uh, Adrian Wilson was hunting with me up in the mountains for the last four days. And, you know, a lot of times he was taking four, three or four sticks, but ended up having to get up the tree and seeing that it wasn't a band. So he's just having to attach a stick to a tree just to get it off his pack. You know, yeah, it just, it works that way for you sometimes. And, you know, it's cool. I mean, it, you just have to, look at your cover more than look at your height and see what you can blend in with. Yep. And that's being able to identify that. Like there's no standard, like, you know, the typical, I guess, if you want to go to social media posts, Oh, I can't wait to be 20 feet up, you know, in a tree. And, and I've, I don't think I'm ever at that height. Not, you know I mean? Like not exactly. And most of the time I'm much lower, but that's just yeah. kind of the, yeah, it all depends on, you know, use your, you know, what, you're seeing around you. And, and so going back to the thing about, you know, walking in the daylight versus walking in the dark, a lot of times I'll do that. Even say if I've been hunting for three or four days or in a rut, and I'm super freaking tired and I want an extra half hour, hour of sleep. I'll hunt yeah. my way in. Like I, this a marathon, not a sprint. Like it truly is. And I've had encounters of walking in and, you know, as I'm saying, I'm walking on the edge of some thick stuff on the downwind side or whatever i'll even grunt walking along the side of that and i know that doesn't work in really high pressured areas as much but and have had bucks come in that way on the ground before i even get to my spot especially if i have a spot where i think it's gonna be pretty good but i don't have an exact tree picked out i'm not yeah. gonna just climb up a tree in the dark just to be in a tree you know yeah. i, I want to have the best advantage and for me personally i've never killed a deer in the rut first light yeah i i haven't either uh i know a lot of guys um you know always get in an hour so i think it's important if you're hunting a buck bed to get in real early but to your point in the rut i most of the bucks i've seen early in the morning have usually been after 7 30 mm -hmm. so it gives you some time and i think you can get in quieter you know, if you have a little bit of gray light, uh, in my opinion, but I think to your point, if you're making some of that natural deer sound, it, a lot of times these bucks are so wired and looking to fight or find women. Like if you add some, that natural sound with your walk and it just puts it together because, you know, when they're at that point, they're not as wired thinking that any little sound is going to trigger them to run off, you know, like bears coyotes everything walk through the woods all the time yeah yeah that's 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 one of my my dad's big strategies is um he likes hunting off the ground and acting like a deer he'll go into these logging cuts and walk the the logging trails with the wind in his face and just start snapping big sticks and grunting and as he's going through and he shot his best bucks off the ground that way usually frontal shot at like 10 yards. I mean, like yeah. in your face type stuff. And I think that's, that's, that's awesome that you can, you do that. You know, it's all, it all depends on what you're looking for. There's also an advantage of walking in the dark when it comes to, I feel like the deer aren't as spooked as much, you know? I, yeah. And like, I just had that on Friday night. I came out and walked past this apple tree. And I literally walked within 15 yards, probably 10 yards of these does that were just watching me with my headlamp. I, the wind was still in my advantage and they just kind of like stood there and just weren't really sure what was going on. I've done that before I walk in and 
I always use a headlamp. I've heard of people that don't and, and people that, you know, use the red light and stuff. And I've, you know, every, to each their own, whatever gives you confidence. But for me, I use a bright white light so I can see my way in that I'm quiet and not snapping stuff. And I feel better about it. And you know, I, I did a podcast with a Dr. Carl Miller, the deer biologist. And he's like, yeah, that doesn't affect them any differently. Dude, I've walked within feet of does with a white headlamp. And they look at me as, like you said, as long as the wind's in my favor, they don't, I, they don't know. I mean, think about how many times deer walk out in front of your car and stare at it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the white light matters. And to your point, I've tried my best to use a red light to my advantage and I stumble over everything in a red light. Yeah. Um, I'm not good with it. And a white light, I have a, a Petzl light that auto dims based on its distance from things. And so when I'm close to something like a tree or my, I even will put it on my hat bill and turn it to where it really tones it down. And it's just enough for me to see way better than a red light, but I walk up on deer all the time with that. And I'm not saying I walked, I've walked up on a booner, but I, I don't think it bothers them as much as what they associate with. I think they're a lot more, they feel a lot more protected under darkness. So no matter what, but if they smell you, you're screwed anyway. It doesn't matter. That's, that's their number one defense against us is smell. Yeah. So, so true. And like, and I mean, to be honest, like any, most of the areas in the mountains, deer density is low enough that you're not spooking a ton of deer doing that. Like maybe I'd be different if you're walking through a cornfield, cut cornfield with a white headlamp on going, I don't know. I, I, I don't do that enough to be able to talk about it, but yeah, you know, in the mountains, I think that being quiet and keeping the the wind to your advantage is better than than you know stepping on shit and breaking branches and the whole bit. Yeah, no. If you have a private trunk uh, chunk of land that you have your targeted name buck, you definitely probably should take some different precautions than you would on, <laughs> you know big tracks of public because you know you have the opportunity to bump a buck get on him or if you don't get on him you have opportunity you know in thousands of acres to go find another one and that's the beauty of hunting public land is we have so much terrain to go find that next deer so we don't have to think all the time that and i know we get caught up in it and it's a bummer when you do bump or miss a really good buck in some of this, these areas don't give up because there's more likely another one out there you know pretty close by just keep pushing yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's an incredible piece of advice right there. Like most of the time, if you're hunting the rut, say you're going on one of these vacation times and you're used trying to get the best, you're trying to have the best opportunity and you're hunting during the rut time frame. Like you're not really hunting a specific deer at that point anyways. No. You know, no. even in my home state of Pennsylvania areas, I know that I have, you know, target bucks I'd like to shoot. It's a pretty, it's, I'm pretty lucky if that deer happens to come through there, you know, while I'm there, it's not like, um, I'm usually not hunting a specific buck. I'm not a person that typically goes all in on one deer. Um, I tried it once, hated it. And <laughs> so, and especially if you're going on a trip out of state, normally you're not doing that. No, you're not. I mean, you'd be lucky if you, I mean, if you did some research and had cameras out through the summer, you can find something, but by the time ruts around and public land, that buck could be anywhere. And, yeah. But you find these good funnels and that 
that monster buck on private, that guy's getting more than likely is living on public and traveling through your corridor anyway. So, you know, like you just have to put your expectations, you know, set in appropriate manner of what's realistic. Yep. I, I totally agree there. And, you know, I mean, I think too many people get sucked into, especially new hunters thinking that a certain score buck is a trophy and, I think any person should realize that going into a new state blind, any buck mountain buck on public land is a trophy to people. If you've never been there before, you know, like you've accomplished a lot, just finding that, like, I don't think you need to put age restriction on yourself. If you're going in blind to a new state, you know, like it's, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. Yeah. I I know me personally, I'm definitely not at a point where I can go in and have like, I, I, way I go into it is I shoot what makes me happy at that point. Like, and so like, even in Pennsylvania, like I'm not a person that says, all right, I'm only going to shoot this size or age class of deer. Maybe that might be my goal, but I am not above (laughs) shooting. So I'd rather shoot, um, a two and a half year old deer the last day archery than have to, to go into rifle season. And, you know, cause it, it, and not saying anything rifle versus archery. It's just, I like archery hunting more and that makes me happier and more fulfilled. So that's just the way I look at it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you can kill a a good buck at 20 yards versus having advantage of shooting hundred plus yards. Yeah. That's, that takes a different, I I think your standards should drop there. If that's what you're trying to accomplish, if you don't have the time, you know, um, and I don't know, sometimes for me, I just get into a zone and loving the experience I'm having. So no matter what I kill, it would be even more cool. You know, like sometimes if you're by yourself and you go in and you hunt hard all week and you kill a, even a doe way back, that pack out's going to be a memory, you know, yeah. like you're by yourself. And it's just like, I think you just have to wrap your mind around the experience more than the actual treasure itself. Um, and that's in my opinion, what leads to the most successful hunt. Yep. Yeah. I totally, totally agree with you there, Jason. Is it, but is it, yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly. Everyone's got their own goals. I don't, I don't get on anybody if they want to shoot a five-year-old deer more that I'm, you know, do that. Or if you want to shoot the first legal buck, you see, you do your thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So is is there anything else you can think of as far as, you know, that you think that the listeners benefit from, um, from going into kind of a new spot in a, in a mountainous type area? Well, I think one of the things I get asked about from guys that have been used to hunting smaller tracks and flatter terrain is they're used to dragging deer out and you get in the mountains, man. And like, for instance, we were hunting private land this week and Adrian, my buddy Adrian got a bear with me and he was only 200 yards from where I could get my truck to, but even dragging that bear 200 yards was a task, you know, and I I would much rather break an animal down and pack it out. So like I had a guy ask me the other day, he was going to Ohio and a mountainous region for the first time this year. And it was like, and I asked him like, how do you plan on getting your animal out? And he's like, oh, we're talking about you know, deer carts or sleds. And I was like, if you're pulled a sled up a, you know, 
half mile long hillside at 20% grade, like it's, it's a task. It's, it's a lot easier to spend the time to break the animal down. As long as the state allows, break that animal down, put it in your backpack. So you have to adjust your backpack strategy a little bit. You know, you can't use some of these packs that are great mobile hunting day packs in these types of scenarios, you know, like, so you need to like fit, fit your gear for the terrain and your experience and, um, you know, buying a good pack and packing animals out, you know, unless you want to spend all night dragging and huffing and heaving, you know, when you could bone that animal out or quarter out and leave half the body there, you know, like it definitely works to your advantage there. So that's one thing that I think people aren't prepared for. And, um, also like some of the gear you wear, like how you go in, like you can't walk in a mile with all your insulated clothes on. Like you have to go in thin. If not, you're going to be pouring in sweat before you get to the tree and you're end up freezing to death. Yep. Uh, and the boots, like you can't use your knee boots in the mountains. Like if you can, you're a bigger man than me. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, so you need to adjust some of this footwear and the gear you carry a little differently from the mountains than what we do in some of the areas that aren't as trying. Yeah. So just, um, on that, on that note, what, what type of boots are you using and then how are you keeping your feet warm? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I predominantly wear some type of hiker slash mountaineer boot. Um, I recently changed last year to a more stiffer mountaineer boot. I, I personally use a um, La Sportiva Caracorma. Uh, I may have pronounced that wrong, but it's this full-on leather mountaineer style boot. It's not, uh, it's a little bit, it's like mid-height, I guess. Yep. And, uh, and what I found in mountainous terrain is that stiffer sole, um, Relieve, you know, relieve some of the foot fatigue from going downhill and uphill and also side hilling, which we run into a lot in the mountains. And also those boots usually carry a little bit more aggressive tread pattern. So it helps in leads and, you know, crumbly ground. Like I, I rarely slip when I'm wearing a stiffer boot. And then where you really see the benefit of something like that is if you're on a week long hunt, like you can't tell anything from day one, but after, as you know, two or three days, four days getting up and hiking, like your body just gets fatigued and your feet are one of the first things that starts breaking down on people that aren't like say a trail runner or things that have done things like that to like strengthen their feet, your feet start wearing you down. So I wear those types of boots. Um, I'm not really a big fan of Gore-Tex because my feet have a tendency to sweat a lot and Gore-Tex boots don't allow my feet to breathe very well. Uh, and most of your good high quality leather boots aren't going to really leak in mild, um, rain anyway, or, you know, wet environments, as long as you keep them treated. And so by doing that, I'm not wearing insulated boots because I don't want my feet to sweat because sweat's a big factor in making your feet cold. So I go in with a thin, thin Merino wool sock and a mountaineer style boot. And then I wear over boots. Uh, on the stand what kind what kind do you use uh i'm currently using a pair of um outdoor research over boots that were made for special forces guys i I have a friend that was in special forces that gave me a set of his they never made them in production 
but the man, they're so awesome. They don't pack very well, but you don't get cold in these things. That's, that's, that's a big, I mean, that's one of the questions I get a lot is from that. And so what, the way I do it is similar to you. I like a stiffer boot. Um, I have two different boots I use. I use my Loa Tibet's, which are stiffer, um, yeah. you know, mid type height, uninsulated leather boot. They're Gore-Tex. Um, but I'll wear those in more of like earlier season as it's kind of warmer hiking in. And then if it's going to be colder, what I'll do is I'll, I have a pair of these things called hot mocks that they don't make anymore. They, uh, they've actually been out of business since like 2013, but I have this pair I found on eBay for $13. It's literally like a, uh, just a, slipper that goes over it and you slide a, like a body warmer in each of them on the top and it keeps your heat in but the problem is with me hunting with a saddle platform is the rugged edges are cutting up the bottoms of them because they're not very durable and mine are having some major holes in them and i actually need to be replaced right now but i haven't found something that that fits that you know i've seen I, uh, last year, Chris Derek from Sika hunted with me, and he bought the. I think they were. I don't know if they're icebreaker or one of those ones that um, make kind of those overboot things. And they were just too bulky. Like they just didn't. They were just huge. But uh, but in the, anyways, then once it gets like really colder, I'm hunting below freezing down in the teens. I'm gonna wear. I have a crispy uh, boot that I wear that's has 400 grams insulation. So a little bit of insulation, but not enough that my feet are sweating like crazy. And I'm always wearing, uh, you know, a mid kind of hiker Merino wool sock. And then I'll get in and throw those over those slippers over the top on those. And honestly, I'm so much warmer than wearing a 1200 gram insulated rubber boot because my feet yeah. sweat so goddamn bad when I'm walking into the stand that your feet are cold before you even start. Yeah. And if you're going any distance in the mountains, going up and down hills, unless you have super strong ankles and knee boots going to be hell on you. Uh, yeah, I've, I've never had, only time I've felt an advantage for high insulation is when I duck on it and I'm standing still in cold water. Yeah. Um, but like, if you're moving in these mountains, I think the overboots and there's not a good overboot out. Like the one I have is a 500 D Cordura outer. But it's still, now that I've been hunting, saddle hunting a lot this year, um, I could see it, it being hard with those overboots to position around the saddle a little bit. So I think there's some areas of improvement for a product like that to be developed that could work for everybody and be awesome because, you know, you're, you feel a lot more nimble with a lighter and non-insulated boot, you know? Well, what do you think, Jason? Let's work on something. Yeah, I know. I, I think about it every day, actually. Uh, <laughs> I think about a lot of new things I want to work on, but there's only so much time and energy to make things come to fruition. Yeah, that's I, I hear you. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, that kind of covers that. And, you know, we were talking about the, the boots, so then the, the last thing I'll comment on what you said about the pack, that's such a, a big deal, too, because if you're going in, say, with a mobile setup, whether you're using sticks in a stand or sticks in a saddle, whatever it is, and normally if you're packing in all your layers because you don't want to wear them in because you're going to sweat, you got a yeah. decently heavy pack on. Right. <clears throat> so you got to have something that's comfortable to do that day in and day out or you're really going to get wore out over the you know five to seven day 
trip and i think that's that's huge as far as when it comes to hunting this type of type areas and i mean then things like you know throw kind of a plug into you is is you know with your sticks with the timber ninja the carbon fiber sticks like having stuff that help make it lightweight really helps out (laughs) yeah it does i mean um the more we can get lighter with some of that stuff because it we start to add up i mean if you're going in for a full day not going back to your truck you're going to need you know to to stay fit throughout the week you need to be up on your hydration and your food so you need to be packing food and water so you know if you're in there for a day you're probably going to have at least one liter of water so that adds up and you got to have a pack that supports that type of structure uh you got to have a pack that will uh, in, incorporate your layers because you know most of what we do is in the mountains i'm usually at least a mile back and you know most people walk about you know let's say over 16 minute pace per mile um and that's in decent terrain and it it takes me about a mile of walking before i start heating up i don't know if you ever pay attention to how long it takes but it you know i can start out cold but after about 15 to 16 minutes I'm, I'm warm with my layer without any layers. I start out real cold, but if I would have started out warm, I'd be sweating and have to shed layers. Yep. Not at my stand soaking wet, which is not a good factor for trying to stay warm throughout the day, you know, cause your, your, your layers have to work overload to wick all that away from you and get you back to a warming state, you know? Yep. Yeah. To- so- totally. So a pack that can incorporate that. And I get a lot of questions. I don't know about you, but I get a lot of questions from guys that see that hunt with a frame pack. And it's like, well, how do you hide that in the tree with you? And I'm like, well, if I'm hunting, like let's say you're a saddle hunter and you're, most of you are hunting a tree less than a size of a basketball, you're already obscure looking anyway. So what's it matter to add a little pack around? Yeah. Know? That does nothing in my opinion. Like, yeah. no, I, yeah, I, that does nothing. In, in my opinion, at least I don't worry about it. <laughs> no, if they picked you off by then, it's just because you were set up improperly. And, um, you know, you're going to get busted regardless if you had that pack on the tree with you or if not. Yep. And if you leave it on the ground, like I've had guys say, do you leave your pack on the ground? I'm like, no, that's another scent buffer. I mean, scent, you know, thing that I rarely get a chance to, you know, have a, box big enough to keep my pack in to keep it scent free because it's always got sweat on it you know so it's just and that's another thing i think people don't understand like there's people that are scent nazis but you come hunt with you know me in the mountains for a few days you realize real quick there's no way to stay scent free like you're going to be sweating like a dog no matter what at some point yep i'm i'm the same way i'd I, I do like, I have this, you know, I shower and scent free stuff and I'll wash my clothes and scent free stuff, but that's just kind of a mental thing for me. And then other than that, like I still wear my clothes in my truck when I'm driving, I do, cause I'm going to be sweating. I'm going to be doing that. I'm not very good as far as scent control goes, like not even really close to be honest. And I actually probably get worse as the season goes on. So yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, not going to try to pull the wool over anybody's eyes there yeah and i'm a proponent in saying like let's not try to put any more inferior sense like don't rub bojangles chicken all over your 
hunting pants while you're going, you know, like those are things that can get picked up. So I'm like you, I buy scent free tide or whatever and wash my clothes. And then I put them in a tote that has like a, that, uh, those earth scent wafers. <laughs> That's what I got in mine too. <laughs> I, put, I, put, I keep my clothes in a tote and put, keep those in my truck and I take those off. But if I'm on a week long hunt, I'm usually wearing those same clothes just because I'm so darn tired when I get back to camp. I don't want to change again. And if we, if there's enough people there and I'm not by myself and we have a campfire, I think charcoal, you know, like smoke is a great buffer for people, you know, like, yeah. Um, but you know, you start spilling beer all over yourself at night and then that becomes an issue. Yeah. Yeah. That, at, yeah. At that point I try to change, but uh, at that point yeah. you might not be getting up as early to, to yeah, exactly. do anything anyways. So. <laughs> so it doesn't matter, but well, one thing I I also do is even when I'm in my like tote or bag that I have everything in, I'll throw leaves in there sometimes. Like just, I don't yeah. know. It's just one of those things. I, I remember my grandpa always saying that like when he'd always come over in the fall to play with us as kids, like in the leave piles and stuff, he's like, Oh, that's when I kill the bucks. And I, you know, I was in the, you know, playing the leaves. It just, I don't know. It's just, again, yeah. it's just something that gives me a little bit of mental confidence. that I throw those in there with it. Yeah. Although I don't do much anything else right with it. It's just one of those things. Yeah. Mental confidence is the key, man. Like whatever you feel comfortable with is, is the thing. Um, everybody has their own little deals. Um, and, you know, like I still wear shirts that I don't want to get rid of just because I have a connection to them thinking they belong with me and they're good luck. You know, like my base layer right now has rips all down the sleeves, but I, I've killed a lot of animals wearing it. And I feel like it has some justification. And, you know, I still wear some Patagonia hoodies that I've rock climbed in that kept me. I never died rock climbing and I feel safe. And even though I may have a tie to hunting clothes company i just can't get rid of those pieces you know like, <laughs> i've never died in them so lucky <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so lucky you know like they you know got me through some hairy spaces and they fit good and they work so it's like man i'm gonna ride you out until you to to you you know you're no more of a use you know you're just worn completely out yeah i i i hear you there that's yeah. uh i i think that was a good thing to cover the whole scent uh, side of it there because that's not something that you know I take a little bit more of my western style of hunting with that and the way western hunters are because I just don't know a good way to really stay scent free I know everything that you do can help and, and every, you know I've heard all those arguments but for me I haven't justified it not yet man because I'm just a believer you're never going to beat that, that dude's nose um, if the wind's in his favor and not in yours, man. It's over with. I don't care. Like, unless you're in an encapsulated pod, you know, like that's only, I mean, you know, well, you I hunt out of those redneck blinds, don't you? In this, in the yeah, mountains. I've got, I carry, I carry one of those on my side by side. Um, <laughs> yeah, just drive through that and have a corn feeder on the back of it, too. Yeah, there you go. I see. I just, I just, I carry those big packs so I can fill with corn. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> I joke with people all the time talking about that. Like, what's the best backpack to get corn into deep spots? <laughs> um, oh, that's funny. Oh man. Well, Jason, I think we covered uh, 
quite a bit on this one. I one, I'm going to say first of all, I appreciate your time, and you've allotted a lot of time. Well, you, I know it's getting late, and you already you still have sticks to build. Um, yeah, which is a, a good thing and a bad thing, right? Is <laughs> it's a it's a good thing you got sticks to build. At the same time, it's like all right, there's less sleep. Yeah, no, it's a little less sleep. I'm taking my little boy bear hunting again in the morning. We've got a bunch of bears showing up and he wants to kill a bear this year. So I'm going to get up in the morning and take him bear hunting before school. Oh, there you he's go. On, he's on virtual school. So he starts at like 10. So we hunt till like 830 or so. Yeah, that's nice. Well, cool. Where, uh, so I want you to first give some information where people can find more about timber ninja and yourself and and everything there i uh, mean easiest place is through our social media or website timber ninja outdoors on instagram facebook youtube and through our website we have contact and you know most people that contacted me like notice real quick like i'm real easy to talk to about hunting strategies or going places it's not always about our products like you know, we sell products and I think we sell good products, but I just like communicating with people, man. And if I can help anybody in any way, that's, that's all we're about. Well, Hey, I mean, the first, the first time you and I met, we talked back and forth on Instagram about everything non-related to your products for a while before ever talking about that. So I can, you, you're definitely not trying to push anything down people's throats. <laughs> no, no you know, people find their way. If they like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. And I had a buddy that has a podcast is like, and I don't know, I feel like I'm a real honest guy. Or I try to, you know, that's how I like when I carry myself. And I had a guy mentioned, he's like, Jason's a type dude that you could share your Onyx pins with and you'd be okay. And like, yeah. I mean, I'll give you mine. I don't care. Like you want to come hunt with me. We're good to go. And that goes for anybody, man. Like, hit me up be game to do whatever it was all about having fun yeah awesome well again thanks for coming on jason and uh good luck is uh, hopefully that taking your son out tomorrow that uh you get a bear and then also just good luck with the rest of your whitetail season yeah man appreciate it dude i'm sure we'll be talking and uh thanks for having us on it's a pleasure Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.